Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to notice one verse in just a moment, and in particular, one word in that one verse, and that's really going to help to introduce everything that we're going to talk about today from the Word of God. So let's get those Bibles cranking to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me join in the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning, even with the announcement of several folks that are out sick. We do have a good number in attendance, and we do have lots of guests with us today, and we appreciate so much your being with us. We hope and trust that we are encouraging you the way that you are encouraging us by your presence and your participation here today as we seek to honor the Lord and to glorify Him in all the things that we say and do. Uh, For the past several months, the congregation here at Lakeside has been engaged in a series of studies on the subject of local church leadership. It is our desire to be scripturally organized by appointing shepherds over this local flock, and so we are doing everything that we can do uh, to prepare ourselves in that direction. And up until today, the preaching that I've been doing on this subject has been relegated to our Sunday evening assemblies. However, today I need to utilize both the a.m. and the p.m. services uh, to talk about some things and to draw our attention to Paul's letters that he sent to a couple of young evangelists. And I want to begin that this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is actually talking to Timothy about deacons. In verses 8 through 13 of this chapter, Paul is laying out some criteria for a man who wishes to serve as a deacon in the Lord's church. There's something important and instructive in the middle of that, and it's found in verse 10, where Paul says there, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 10, he says that these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And I focus your attention on that word tested. Several other translations use the word proved. In fact, if you're reading from the ESV this morning, you'll find the word tested and prove right there in the same verse. The idea there is that Paul says that before a man can be a deacon, he needs to have proven himself in certain respects. And while we will talk about deacons at some point, that's actually not our focus at this time. What I want you to notice in that verse is that Paul says that these deacon candidates... They must also prove themselves. That word also is evidence that Paul has been talking about another group of people who must prove themselves to be fitting for a particular task. And indeed, that is the case. That when you look back up in the first seven verses of this chapter, what you will find is that Paul has been outlining the character that a man must possess in order to be an overseer an elder, a shepherd in the Lord's church. And when we couple those ideas in the first seven verses, when we couple that with what Paul says here in verse 10, what we come to realize is that the character that this man has, it must have been proven. It must have been demonstrated and observable, not just to God, but it needs to have been proven to all of us. That is, we need to be able to have looked out amongst ourselves and we're able to spot and identify men that have demonstrated a certain kind of character in their lives that would then make them fit for the office of an overseer. And so the Lord, through His Apostle Paul, 
He sent Holy Spirit-inspired instructions to Timothy. Timothy here, he is uh, laboring with a congregation at Ephesus. You'll read about that in chapter 1. And this is a congregation that you will remember already had elders. Paul spent that time in Acts chapter 20 talking to the elders of the Ephesian church. Timothy is laboring with a church that already has elders. Then Paul sends a letter to a young evangelist by the name of Titus who was laboring with churches in Crete that did not have elders. And he gives them a certain set of criteria or guidelines that they need to be looking for in men who would serve in this critical and important role. And while these two lists are not identical, you can't just lay them on top of one another and they're exactly the same, and I wonder if maybe that has to do with the different circumstances that Timothy was in and the circumstances that Titus was in, even though they are different in some respects, I still believe that we can find harmony. And the Lord expects us to find harmony in these two lists in order to provide for us a very clear picture of what it is that we need to be looking for today. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin just by reading the list. Let's just read those two passages. Since you're already in Timothy, let's just start there. If you're in the Wednesday night adult class, then you're probably already very familiar with these passages. You've read and talked about them a lot, I know, over the last several weeks. But we need to read them again today. Let's put them before us and consider some things and the meaning of them, not just this morning. We'll talk about them again this evening. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard today, and I like the, the rendering of certain words, and you'll see why here in just a moment. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, It is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, well, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, hold those thoughts in your mind and turn over just a couple of pages to Titus now. In Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, there Paul writes to this young brother beginning in verse 5. In Titus 1 and in verse 5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those verses and we're going to do that in just a second. But before we start discussing these character qualities, can I make just a couple of observations about the lists? Because I think that if we'll keep just a couple of key ideas at the forefront of our minds as we think about these lists, 
then it'll help us to approach these qualifications with fairness and in a proper way and in a balanced way. First and foremost, it needs to be stated that these lists are not random. You know, can you imagine if you're reading through the qualifications and all of a sudden it says, and he must be left-handed. What would we say about that? We'd say, what? Left-handed? That's just weird. Why does he need to be left-handed? You know, how exactly does being left-handed, what's it have to do with the work of a shepherd, the work of an elder? That, That seems rather arbitrary, but... Oh, well, if God said he needs to be left-handed, then, well, then all you right-handers, you're just out of luck. You're just not going to be qualified. Well, thankfully, that's not what God did. God didn't do that kind of stuff with these lists. He didn't just give a bunch of random and capricious guidelines just for the sake of being being to whittle down the number of candidates. No, these qualities are given because they are purposeful. That a man has some things here that are intentional. These are ideas and concepts that help to not only prepare a man for this work, but these are ideas and concepts that will then assist that man in carrying out the work. These lists are very intentional in their design. Secondly, it needs to be stated that these lists are not about perfection. Now, I realize that this is a point that probably gets made in some way in just about every sermon when you talk about elder qualifications. But can you imagine... Can you imagine appointing a man to serve as an elder who had been impulsive? Can you imagine appointing a man as an elder who had been hypocritical? Or a man who had been foul-mouthed? Or a man who had renounced Jesus? Can you imagine appointing a man like that to serve as an elder? See, Some people kind of nod their heads saying, no, I can't imagine ever doing that. Well, congratulations. You just disqualified the Apostle Peter. And yet, despite those imperfections that were on Peter's record, if you will, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that Peter was an elder in a local church. Which really just goes to illustrate and to show us in a very real sort of way that these lists are not about seeking perfection. And that is one of the reasons that I fear that many churches today do not have elders. And that is because there are people within congregations who have a very unreasonable and have a very unbiblical view of what it is that they ought to be looking for. If these lists were calling for perfection, that a man is to be these things 100% of the time, all throughout his life, then the truth is a church would never have elders. In fact, I'll take that a step further. Even if these lists and these qualities, even if it was calling for near perfection all across the board, Still, a church would never have elders. And so these lists are not about finding a perfect person. There was only one person who ever walked this earth who was perfect. and He's not up for the position of an elder. He's reigning now as the head of the church. That's Jesus. What these lists are about is this third idea. And that is that these lists are about a proven character over time. I really need everybody to just lock in on that third point this morning. I need you to lock in on it for this morning. I need you to lock in on it for tonight. In fact, I need you to just lock in on that for the duration of your life. If we can just download that into our system right now, that will really help us with how we think about these characteristics. You know, as we look at these character qualities this morning, what we're going to quickly find out is that most of these qualities, not all of them, but most of these are qualities that all Christians should strive for. 
Whether you're ever going to be an elder or not, whether you're in a congregation that does or doesn't have elders, it really doesn't matter. Because the majority of these things apply to all of us. And we'll talk about what these things are and why they're important for people. I realize there's some things that don't apply to everybody. Not everybody that's a Christian has to be married. Not everybody that's a Christian has to have children. I get that. But most of these things that are are things that all of us need to be striving to possess and to have in our lives. The major difference, though, is that an elder is a man who has proven to possess this kind of character, and he's proven that consistently over time. And so when we look at these lists, the question is not, hey, have you ever been any of these things at any point in your life? Or the question is not, hey, have you ever not been the things that you shouldn't be in this list at any point? No. The question is, has he proven Has he demonstrated over time that he possesses the character that God requires of a shepherd over his flock? That's what we're looking for. My task this morning is to just use the Holy Spirit's words to try and paint for us an accurate portrait of what that looks like. And so, if we were to take both of those lists in Timothy and in Titus, and if we were to just kind of put them all together, put them all on the board, put all those pieces together... What you get is you get a combined list of roughly two dozen qualities, give or take a few depending on how you count some of these things, a couple of dozen qualities that a man must possess in order to serve as an elder. Now, I've tried to duplicate or tried not to duplicate some of the ones that are synonyms of one another, even though we will end up talking about them anyway. And you'll also notice as well that I did not include that idea of aspiring or desiring this work. I didn't include that as one of the character qualifications, namely because I devoted an entire sermon to that idea just last month. And so what then do we do with these characteristics? There's a lot there. There's a lot going on in those verses. How do we handle all of this information and sort through it in a manner that It's not so overwhelming or even so confusing. Well, you see this morning, if I can maybe kind of categorize these ideas in a way that will be helpful for us, that will maybe make it even a little bit easier for us to find the kind of man God wants us to be looking for. And one of the very first things that is just so apparent to me when I look at that list is that an elder is someone who must be a godly man. Now, I realize that All of the qualifications, they are all of equal importance. There's not any that, well, this one's more important than the other one. No, they're all on equal playing field. But I am going to start with this one. Because so much of what Paul says in these passages, it revolves around this man having a godly and righteous character. For example, both passages begin by talking about the idea of being above reproach. In fact... That idea of being above reproach or not falling into reproach, it's found twice in Timothy and twice in Titus. That does stand out to me a bit. It is the idea that he is blameless. That a charge of evil against him, that it cannot be sustained. Now, it's not that this is a man who's never committed sin. No, he's committed sin. But rather, he doesn't harbor sin in his life. This is a man who deals with sin in his life, and he deals with it in a godly sort of way. This is a man who if people kind of put him under the magnifying glass, they would have to look really, really, really hard in order to find something that they could impugn his character with. That's important for an elder. 
Because that then helps to build some trust and confidence with the sheep. That is, when we have a man who is above reproach, that means that we don't have to sit around and doubt and question what kind of character he has. We don't have to question his integrity. We don't have to wonder if he's maybe kind of like the so-called bishops that exist in the Catholic Church, and I'm using that term bishop in the loose way in which they use that, whose morality is often called into question because of the wicked and perverse things that they often do. We're not going to have that trouble here. Because this is a man who's above that. He's above reproach. He has godly character. And I think that's furthered when Paul goes on to say that he is a man who is respectable or a man of good behavior. This is a fellow whose life is it's well-ordered. He carries himself well. His life is not in all kinds of shambles and ruin. Rather, he's, he's got it together. He's well-mannered. He's modest. He's the kind of guy that we would say he's a gentleman. And as a result, the sheep are comfortable with him. We are confident in his leadership. And in fact, we're confident in emulating his good behavior. We know as well that he must be a godly man because Paul says some things about how he is devout or he is holy. This is a man who has devoted himself fully to God and to God's things. That is, he set himself apart from all the defilements and the ugliness and the nastiness of this world. He's seeking to live a pure and sincere life. He is as well. He is a lover of good. Which means not only does he do good things, but he loves to do good things. He finds joy in service and in helping others. It's not merely a sense of obligation for him. Well, I have to do the good thing. I have to do the right thing. No, he loves to do that. He finds joy in doing righteousness. And so he promotes that and he practices that and he values that. And because of these things, he is a man of good reputation, not just amongst the flock, but he has a good reputation even amongst people who are outside of the church. In other words, that what we see in this man on Sunday, people in the world would vouch and verify that he's that exact same guy Monday through Saturday. That what he is in here, this is how he is all of the time. Whether that's on the job, whether that's in the community, whether that's in his home, he is the same kind of man consistently. So that even people who are outside of the body of Christ, they look at that man and they say, you know what? That's a good man. I may not agree with everything about him religiously. I may be you know, completely different in my beliefs, but you know what? I like that guy. He's a good guy and he seems sincere in trying to serve the Lord. He's got a good reputation with those who are outside. And of course, we want the men who would represent this congregation as its leaders, we want them to be well thought of by outsiders, don't we? And we're doing that not because we want to be people pleasers. We're trying to please people out there. But we're trying to bring those people into the family of God. And so elders need to have a good reputation with those folks as being a reputation of a man of godly character. In fact, I think that's part of the reason why Paul mentions some of these other things that he's not to have in his life. That he's not to be a drunkard. Or that he's not to be a covetous person. Or that he's not greedy for dishonest gain or for filthy lucre as some of the old translations say. And it's not just that those kinds of behaviors are, are, are destructive in and of themselves. But furthermore, those are the kinds of things, being a drunkard, being greedy, being covetous, those are the kinds of things that can really damage a man's reputation. 
They cause His character to be called into question. And now, He's no longer above reproach. Now, now He's been called into reproach. How important is it then that His conduct and the way that He lives His life, that He sets forth an example that is worthy of imitation because He is a godly man? I'll go ahead and tell you, I, I believe that we have a lot of godly men here. I believe we have a lot of godly women in this congregation. People who are trying to honor the Lord in everything that we do. And again, every one of those qualities, those qualities that all of us, young, old, male, female, all of those that are in white right there, all of us need to be cultivating and developing in our lives. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you've proven that godly character in your life. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the only thing that we need to be looking for. Paul tells us secondly, as you look at these lists, that an elder is a man who must be a peaceful man. And there, once again, are a number of qualities that are given here that I think really just bears that out. For example, he has to be self-controlled. The idea here is that he has his power, all of his passions and all of his impulses. He has those things in check, particularly his emotions. Emotions like anger. Anger is a very strong emotion. And it's not that an elder never ever gets angry. No, even Jesus got angry. But he has the strength and he has the wherewithal to rein in that anger, even in difficult situations. I think that's furthered in the text when he goes on to say that he's not quick-tempered. This is a man who has a long fuse. He's not easily set off. He doesn't explode at the slightest bit of provocation. Instead, he is long-suffering. What a critical quality that is, especially when you're dealing with sheep who oftentimes do dumb things and test that long-suffering, which is why Paul goes on to say next is that he's not he's not pugnacious. And this is actually the reason I read the New American Standard today. I just love that word, pugnacious. I think other translations say he's not violent or he's not a bruiser or not a brawler. But I like the word pugnacious because it always makes me think of a pug. You ever seen one of those dogs, a pug? Their faces are just all scrunched up there. And when you look at them, it looks like they're just always wearing a scowl on their face. I'm always you know, timid about petting a pug because I don't know if they're mad at me or they want me to pet them. They just always look like they're looking for a fight all the time. Well, Paul says that an elder, he can't be a pug. He can't be walking around with a scowl on his face all the time, looking and trying to pick a fight with folks. He can't be somebody who is quarrelsome and contentious in that way. Instead, he has to be peaceable. That is, he's the kind of guy who tries to get along with everybody. He tries to get along with the people in his home. Maybe that's the first place that he starts with that. He tries to get along with the people in his workplace. He tries to get along with his neighbors and the people in his community. He tries to get along with the other people on the road, the other drivers on the road. Sometimes that's a real test of a man's peaceableness. And of course, he tries to get along with the people that are in the church, in God's family. And this is the kind of man that even when he walks into a kind of a a combustible and volatile situation, he's the guy that can be counted on to be a voice of reason. That he's going to bring some calmness to the situation. He's trying to reconcile folks. He's trying to be a peacemaker. Furthermore, part of the reason that he is a peaceful man is because he's not self-willed. He is not the kind of man who has the attitude of, I've got to have my way or it's just the highway. No. 
He's not stubborn in that way. He's not headstrong. No, he's the kind of guy who's actually willing to just to listen to what other people have to say. To, to take in their points of view and the things that they might be thinking. And you know what? He doesn't get upset when somebody disagrees with him or sees things differently. You understand then, as you think about those ideas in yellow, you understand how vital those qualities are to the work of a shepherd? Shepherds are called upon to sometimes step in and to mediate what can be very combustible situations. Here's maybe two brothers in the congregation that are bickering and fussing with one another. Elders going to need to be called in to help deal with that. Here's a husband and a wife that they're not getting along. Their marriage isn't what it ought to be. Maybe it's on the brink of a divorce. Elders going to have to go in in the middle of that. And that can be very difficult. Or maybe shepherds are sometimes called upon to go and confront Christians who are in sin, who have wickedness in their life and who need to repent, and they go and talk with them. And they do that in a very loving and kind and a certain sort of way, but sometimes even that can turn ugly. People get very upset when you call them out for their bad behavior. So shepherds need a certain temperament to deal with that. Shepherds are called upon to intervene whenever false doctrine is introduced or false practices are creeping in. That requires a certain temperament. Shepherds sometimes have to bear up under accusations that are leveled at them. People point the finger at elders. And sometimes they criticize elders, maybe without even knowing the full story. But elders have to know how to deal with that. They have to exercise great restraint and long-suffering in all of that. You just stop and think about the number of explosive and intense situations where elders are called upon to intercede. And you start to realize how a hot-tempered, short-fused man, undisciplined man, that if he's in that position of a leader, he's going to cause that fire to turn into just an absolute destructive forest fire. That can be a real problem. And that's why Paul says that we need to be looking for a peaceful man. A man who knows how to keep his cool even when things get hot. Thirdly, though, the Bible shows us in these passages that as we look for an elder, he must be a man who is a family man. Now, much is said about the family qualifications, and Lord willing, we will talk about those a little bit further in greater detail this evening. But can I make just some general observations this morning, some things that that, uh, there can be no disagreement on any of those things this morning. And the first of those is this, and that is that he must, he must be married. He has to have a wife. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about how the husband, he is to be the leader in the marriage relationship. He's leading, and the wife is submitting and following. And so obviously, as early as that chapter, we come to see that God has some intentions in mind there. That God wants that home to be that first proving ground for that man. That his leadership is going to be put to the test in that environment if he desires to lead the family of God. That's where he begins to learn those skills. And that's drilled home even further when the text goes on to say that he has to be a father. That he has to be a father. And in fact, how he raises his children, that is also another test of his character. In fact, it's not enough, as Timothy points out, it's not enough that he keeps his children under control and that they're submissive to him. But it's also how he does that that's important. Notice it says that he keeps his children under control with all dignity. He raises them and keeps them submissive in a dignified sort of way. You know, it's one thing for your kid to be submissive and obedient and respectful of you, but how you do that is even of greater importance. 
Because if your kids are respectful and obedient and submissive to you because you beat them, or because you put fear in them and you come in and you rule with an iron fist, then that then calls into question your leadership skills. But if they are submissive and obedient because you've taught them, you've trained them, And that's a whole different kind of leadership. That's the kind of leadership that the Lord is looking for in His church. And that's why Paul goes on to say that he must be a man, kind of talking in general here, that he must be a man who manages his own household well. We're looking for a man who has led his family in a righteous and dignified manner. That the relationship that he sustains with his wife and with his children, that it is characterized by a care and concern for them. And for their well-being, not just physically in providing for them, but spiritually in providing spiritual nourishment for them. That is exactly why when you look there in the Timothy passage especially, that Paul makes those comparisons between his physical household and God's spiritual household. That how a man interacts with his physical family in his home, that that is often a good indicator of how he will interact with God's family in the church. Now, again, we'll talk about some of the more difficult and controversial aspects of the family qualifications tonight. But can I just say right now that when we think about these family qualifications, that the primary question that we need to be asking is this. We need to be asking, what kind of spiritual leader is he? Because that's the point of these family qualifications. What kind of spiritual leader Has he demonstrated himself to be? Has he developed with his wife the kind of marriage that God is pleased with? Has he helped her to grow closer to the Lord and the family to grow closer to the Lord? Does he sacrifice for his wife, committed and devoted to her in the same way that Jesus is to his church? Has he led his children? Has he taught them to know the Lord and to know the way of truth? Has he trained them to be obedient and respectful and submissive? Has he done what Ephesians 6 verse 4 says? Fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger, but instruct them, train them up, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If a man has not led his family well, then he cannot be entrusted with God's family. What we need is a man, is we need a man who has proven himself to be a leader within his family. Which brings us to this fourth category. Because I believe that these qualities show us, fourthly, that he must be a capable man. Now, in some ways, that goes without saying, especially when you remember that Paul begins all of this by saying that this is a work. That it's not just some honorific title. Hey, I'm an elder and I get to put that on my name badge. It is an honor, but that's not the purpose of appointing a man to that. No, he's doing this because it is a work. Which means then if he's doing the work, he must possess certain abilities, capabilities that help him to execute and carry out that work. And what is the ability that he needs? Well, the primary ability that he must possess, if he's going to care for the flock of God, is that he must be able to teach. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul talked to those Ephesian elders there, talk to them about being shepherds, he says that the way that you care for, the way that you feed the flock of God is with the Word of God, the Scriptures. And an elder must be a man who can teach God's Word. And in the letter to Titus, Paul gives even more detail about that by saying that he needs to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and he needs to also be able to refute those who oppose 
sound doctrine. Now, when you think about that ability to teach, at least a couple of things are just obviously implied in there. First of all, an elder must have a knowledge of the Scriptures. Before he can begin to share God's Word with others, he must himself first have that knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that he has to be a Bible scholar. That doesn't mean that he's a walking concordance and can just rip off every verse from memory. No. But he does need to know the book. He needs to be familiar with it. He needs to know how to rightly handle the book. He's a guy who is experienced with the Word of God. He has spent time, he has devoted parts of his life to studying God's Word, to learning God's Word, to apply God's Word. In fact, that's not something he's just done in the past. That's something he's continually doing, always seeking to grow in the Word. This is a man who loves the Bible. And then secondly, yes, if he's able to teach, that means he needs to be able to share and impart that information with others. Now, I know that there are some people who hold the conviction that what that means is, is being able to teach is he must be a polished pulpit man. That he needs to be a very gifted speaker and orator and he's able to just captivate people's attention as He explains to them and is expository in the Word of God. And I know as well that there are people who says, well, the way that He shows that He's fit to be an elder is that He's able to teach an adult Bible class. And He's mastered a whole quarter's worth of material and He's studied and laid all this stuff out and He presents it with such poise and precision and depth. The truth of the matter is, teaching can be done in a variety of different settings. Yes, it can be done in the pulpit. It can be done in one of those classrooms downstairs. It can be done across a kitchen table. It can be standing back there in the foyer after services. What we need, though, the point is, is that we need a man who can provide that kind of teaching, whatever the environment might be, wherever it might be, and whoever it might be with. And yes, I will just say that if you do aspire to the office of an overseer one day, then a good place to maybe demonstrate and prove that you have the character of a teacher, yes, a good place to do that would be here in the assemblies of the church. Because that's going to give you an opportunity, whether it's preaching in a sermon, or whether that's teaching a Bible class in a, in, in a public sort of way, that's going to give you the chance to demonstrate to everybody. All at once, we're going to be able to see, yep, that guy knows how to teach. He knows some stuff about the Bible. We can be confident that he knows God's Word. Let's not just limit that to what happens within these four walls. I've known lots of men who did not have great pulpit presence. They weren't good at standing up in front of a a big old group. Do you know what? Whenever you talk with them one-on-one, it was very clear that they knew the Bible. They knew the difference. They could spot the difference between truth and error. They could answer people's Bible questions. In fact, people would often go to those people to have their questions answered instead of maybe going to the pulpit man. These are the kinds of men who could refute false doctrine and do exactly what Paul says there to Titus. This is a guy who had convictions to be able to stand on sound doctrine. He had the wisdom to be able to impart that and help people to know how to skillfully apply that in their lives. In fact, I do believe that this is one of the reasons that Paul says that he's not to be a new convert. That an elder can't be someone who is young in the faith. Yes, as Paul points out to Timothy, there's the danger that a new convert, if he's placed in the position of an elder, he could get puffed up and conceited, and that's a problem. But just more practically speaking, a new convert isn't going to be able to teach and instruct and exhort and refute 
at least not in the same way that a seasoned man would be able to do that. And so what we're looking for is we're looking for a capable man. A man who can use the Word of God to feed the flock, even use the Word of God to protect the flock. Fifthly, these passages show us that in order to be an elder, you need to be a sensible man. In fact, the New American Standard actually just uses the word sensible in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. I think other translations use the word sober or sober-minded. There's a couple of other terms that are used here that I think really need to just kind of be placed within the same company as this idea is sensible. And that is the word temperate and the word prudent. Both of these words help to describe a man who is careful. A careful man. This is a man who has not only some common sense, but he has good judgment about how to use that common sense. These qualities describe a man who's able to look carefully at a situation. He's able to explore all of the options. He listens to all sides of that situation. He hears all of the evidence. He considers all of the possible outcomes before finally then making a decision and moving forward. This is a man who he takes his time. He's not quickly just caught up in whatever the latest spiritual fad may be. While others in other churches, they might be quickly swept away in various things. He's the kind of guy who takes a step back and says, let's, let's think about that a little bit. Let's look at that a little bit longer. Let's study about that. He cautiously investigates everything. He's not merely just led by his gut instinct. No, he's led by his mind. His mind that has been trained by the Word of God. You understand why a sensible man is crucial to an eldership, don't you? Elders have to be able to process and filter all kinds of information and input. They have to be able to listen to the youngest of hearts in the congregation. They have to be able to listen to even the oldest hearts in the congregation. They have to listen and hear from people who know just a little bit about the Bible. They have to be able to listen and process what people who know a lot about the Bible have to say. And they have to be able to sift through all of that and all that varying information and be able to take and to use what is right. Be able to take and to discard what needs to be discarded. They have to carefully sometimes mediate between maybe some bickering brothers, both of whom believe that their position is right and the other one is wrong. An elder, instead of just jumping on the side of one or the other, go sit and listen to both of those men. In fact, I think that's why Paul says that he needs to be just. That he's not crooked. He's not shady. He's fair. He's equitable in how he treats others, particularly in how he treats the sheep. Through it all, though, an elder is going to carefully, sometimes even very slowly, he's going to work with people and he's going to work through issues. He's going to exercise great judgment, great deliberation, great discernment, and great wisdom. And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it is that prudence that frustrates us, at least personalities like me, because I'm the, let's hurry up and go. Let's get it done now. Let's be gung-ho and just jump right into things. Well, an elder's going to be the guy who's going to say, let's, let's stop. Let's think about this. Let's consider it from all sides. Let's examine that in a more thoughtful and prudent way. We need, we need sensible men. And then finally, this last category. The Bible shows us that for a man to be an elder... He must be a caring man. Now, it's never stated specifically that an elder needs to be approachable. 
But I believe these character qualities and the last couple that we'll look at here, I believe it would certainly just really just kind of demand that he is the kind of person that people can come to and feel comfortable about that. For example, the text says that he has to be hospitable. Now, we hear the word hospitable and what do we think? We think of getting our house all ready and making some dinner and having company over. That's our definition of hospitality. And maybe that's true in some respects. But you do know what hospitality meant in the first century, don't you? In the first century, hospitality maybe meant that you would open up your home to a Christian refugee. Here's somebody who maybe had to flee from their town, flee from their home because of religious persecution. And now they've come to this new place and they have no place to stay. They have no food. All they have is the clothes that's on their back. They don't have a job. And so what do you do? You you take them in. You extend hospitality. It's a kindness demonstrated to a stranger. Maybe hospitality meant in first century times that you housed a gospel preacher maybe for a few weeks or even a few months at a time as he comes to your town to preach the gospel and to present the word. Maybe an apostle comes to your town and you're giving him a place to stay. And so elders, as Paul says here, that would be men whose homes were open and welcoming even to strangers. And elders today are called upon to be men whose doors are open. They, they have just an attitude of, of welcomingness. They are inviting in their character. Their character just says to people, hey, you can come to me. You can trust me. I'm wanting you to know that I'm available to you. I want to help you. Here's my hand outstretched. Here's my hand of hospitality to you. And then there is, of course, that word, that last word, the word gentle. Mitchell had a great lesson uh, a few weeks ago during our weekend meeting about gentleness and how we are to be delicate and tender in how we treat one another. And an elder must exhibit that same quality. He can't be harsh. He can't be brash. Instead, he has to have tenderness and kindness about him. This is a man who's emotionally connected to people. That even if he says something to somebody that maybe it stings a little bit and it hurts a little bit, it's the truth that they needed to hear, he does that in a delicate and gentle way. He does that with great care and great concern for that individual. And that moderate and that gentle disposition It puts us at ease. That is inviting to us. We feel comfortable with that man. You know what? Sheep need to feel that way about their shepherds. We need to know that I can talk to that guy. I'm needing some advice. I can go talk to that elder. I'm seeking some some counsel for some things that are going on in my life. I can talk to that elder. I can be honest with this individual about my struggles or the struggles in my family. I can talk to that elder. One of the saddest things that I have ever heard was a woman who came up to me. I was preaching in a gospel meeting in another congregation. And a woman came up to me during the middle of the week and she asked if she could sit and talk to me privately and had some things that she wanted to to ask me about and ask my advice about. And it was some pretty heavy stuff. And before I ever even addressed any of her concerns that she was asking about, the first thing that I asked her was, I said, Sister, have you talked to your elders? about this? And her response just floored me. She said, I just don't think I could talk to them. I'm afraid to talk to them about what's going on. How sad. What a terrible commentary that is. And I don't know who that's a worse commentary about, whether it's about that sister, or whether that's a commentary about that elder. Not sure exactly where the fault lies. Maybe it runs even both ways. But what we need We need men who are approachable. 
People that we're not afraid to go to. Men who we know have a genuine love and care for others, for the souls of others. And I'm going to tell you, I do believe that we have caring men like that within this congregation. These then, these are the qualities that qualify a man to shepherd the people of God. This is the kind of character that a man must prove he possesses, evident to all of us, He has the ability to serve in this vital role. Now, before we close, can I just say one quick word of application to our younger men? To our younger men who may kind of be in that stage that I'm not quite all the way there, but I aspire to this, I want to serve as an elder someday. Can I just say to you, brother, and your families, you start that now. You start that work Now, if you've not already, you get to work on those character qualities. You start helping us now to see whether those things are proven and evident in your life so that when the day and the time does come that you are to be considered to be serving as as an elder in this church, we're going to know. We We will just know because we've seen it. All that you have a track record here. You've proven yourself. We've observed in your life and we're able to confidently say... That man, that man has the character of a shepherd. In the meantime, what we need to be doing as the congregation here, and I realize we've got lots of visitors here today, thank you for being with us, and I realize this may not have direct application to you, but to the members here, we need to be looking out amongst our number. And we need to be thinking about, with these ideas in mind, you study those further if you want to, we need to think about who is qualified to serve this congregation in the present. That doesn't mean that we're submitting names today or taking any of those kind of actions today. That's not what's going on. There's still some teaching that needs to be done. But we do need to be looking. We do need to be thinking. We need to be praying. We need to be examining. We need to be testing. And I will say that I do believe that we have qualified men in this group. But I also realize that that's just the judgment of one person in a congregation of 125 people. Tonight we will talk about some of those additional things that we need to be thinking about, particularly as it pertains to the family. So I hope you'll be back at 6 o'clock tonight to study and to think about those things a little bit further. You know, it's kind of hard to offer an invitation when you do a lesson like this because this is a lot of in-house sort of discussion. But it is worth noting that all of the qualities of a shepherd in the local church, they are all modeled after the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus the Christ, the shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. The question that needs to be considered as we're about to sing the song of invitation is this, and that is, are you one of his sheep? Have you submitted your will to the good shepherd? Have you done that in faith and in trust? Have you confessed him as Lord? Have you repented and turned from sin? Have you been baptized, buried with him in baptism to have all of your sins washed away. If you haven't, today's a great day to do that. Maybe you just got questions about that. Maybe you're hung up somewhere and all of that, and you just need somebody to talk to. Let's talk about that. Let's study about that. You get me after services, and I'll be glad to talk about those things. If you are a Christian, though, you are one of the sheep, but maybe you've kind of went astray. Maybe you're acting more like a goat. Stop it, brother or sister. Repent. 
Come back to the Good Shepherd. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you so that we can all be in the safety of that sheepfold. So that we can ultimately be with our Good Shepherd in eternity throughout the ages of the ages in heaven. You're subject to the invitation this morning in any way. Would you simply come forward and make that known? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.